for today will be in Matthew 18 again. And uh, last Sunday, we started to focus in on this first theme in this passage about being humble before the face of the Lord. Uh, The disciples had asked, of course, that question in verse number one, Lord, who is the greater one or who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, from that question, sensed their need of a, a major lesson, and it's very helpful for us as well. So Jesus, if you remember, pulled a little child into their midst and told them, whoever becomes like one of these little ones is the greatest, or whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. And we saw that the the insignificance and the relative smallness of that child, his weakness, his his timidity, the honesty, the, the readiness to believe, the readiness to accept, that was the point. Uh, the little ones before the Lord are the ones who come to him like that little child. We saw that that position before the Lord is really part of or or one way to describe our our conversion. Jesus said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. Uh, Conversion then, in one sense, partly, is turning from our pride, from our self-reliance, from our self-sufficiency, from our moral ability to recognize our weakness and need. We, we saw again those themes of the Beatitudes, the, the meekness, the poorness of spirit, the mourning of sin, the hungering for righteousness, which is the attitude of one who is genuinely blessed and changed before the face of the Lord. Well, after looking at that in the first five verses, we were still left with a lot of ground to cover to get to verse number 14. So today we'll pick it up in verse number six. Uh, which really is a good starting and stopping point because it's kind of a transitional verse. Um, So let's read, beginning in verse number 6 down through verse number 14 of Matthew 18. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See then, verse 10, that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one which went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, being able to apply it 
for it to go down deep into our hearts, to take root in, in good ground. Lord, even now, prepare our hearts in that way. Till, till up the, the fallow and hard soil so that we can hear and obey your word. And help us to see your mercy in this text. Help us to see your grace in this text and where you are hard on us, Lord. Help us to see it as because of your love. And we pray that you would just be glorified in our midst and help us as we look to you, our source of life. And we pray this in Christ's name, our Savior. Amen. Verse 6 picks up and keeps that theme of the little ones, uh, which we saw in the previous verses. And it begins to speak about the next kind of humility. And uh, we have the same outline from last week. So you'll see point number two is humility in the face of temptation. Humility in the face of temptation. Now, I think it's, it's worth making a note here that Jesus, at this point, doesn't seem to be speaking strictly of little children when he uses this phrase, but rather uh, he's speaking of those who have turned and have become like this little child, his disciples, and by implication, any who have humbled themselves before him. I think we see that in verses 4 and 5, which say, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives one such child, in other words, the one who has turned, the one who has humbled himself, And I think Jesus is making the point that those who have humbled then all are like little children before him. So when Jesus speaks again of the little ones in verse 6 and verse number 10, I don't think he's speaking strictly of the little children, but rather the metaphoric little children who have turned and become like a child before the Lord. The ones who have recognized their insufficiency and need before him. It's then a metaphor for being a believer, a a follower of Jesus, a Christian. It is to be a child and a child of God. And we know scripture speaks in those terms. For instance, John in his first epistle writes about the, the receivers of that letter. He says, my little children, I write unto you that you might not sin. John is not writing that letter just to five and six and seven-year-olds. He's writing that to adults who can read it, but referring to them as little children. It's common in scriptures. Later on in 1 John, as we read even in the middle of our worship time, we read this passage, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I think it's important to see that the the term little ones now refers to believers because one of the main points of this teaching is that we do not despise the little ones, but rather accept them because the Lord accepts them as well. And it goes back to the original question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Well, the Lord is teaching his disciples that they've asked the wrong question. The Lord's eye is not to the great, to the noble, to the mighty, and the strong, as we saw in 1 Corinthians. 
And if his eye is not to the great, the mighty, the noble, and the strong, then our eye as well must be to those whom God has called, even in their weakness, even in their humility. Whoever receives one such child, verse 5, in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. We are to receive then the ones who come to the Lord in their humility. And in doing so, Jesus said, we've received him, for we've taken on his attitude. So then we see, with that in mind, humility in the face of temptation. And we see that, verse number six, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble. The word cause to stumble or cause to sin, depending on what translation you're reading, is a pretty broad word. It can mean anywhere from uh, the idea to, to cause them to fall away utterly, or it can mean as something as simple as to cause them to trip up. And the idea is that a stumbling stone has been placed in the way of someone. An object has been placed in their way. And the first and most obvious warning here is that there is great woe for anyone who attempts to cause a believer to sin. And that woe is evidenced in the warning that Jesus gives. It would be better, verse 6, for a great millstone to be fastened around his neck. That's a millstone, not a small mortise and pestle, but rather one of the large ones which a donkey would have pulled to grind up the wheat. It would be better for that person to be drowned in the sea than for him to place a stumbling block in the way of one of my little ones. And, of course, that warning continues with just as strong language in verse number 7, which says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now, Jesus' teaching here brings up an interesting parallel Uh, Not a contradiction, just two parallel truths. One, it is a known and necessary fact that temptations or stumbling blocks be in the world. It's part of God's redemptive plan, and it's part of his ways to allow or even ordain those things at times. But two, it's great woe to whoever causes that temptation, whoever causes the stumbling block to be placed there. And I say that because this passage is not a free pass for those who stumble or for those who sin. It is not taking the the responsibility off of somebody who does fall in temptation, but it does shine light on the other side of the coin, the person who put the temptation there. This, of course, in your minds, may go right straight back to the Garden of Eden where that first great temptation by the evil one, the devil himself, where Satan willfully drew Adam and Eve toward the forbidden fruit 
enticing them with a masterful sales pitch, building up the greatness of what they were missing out on. And in that story, we see that a curse fell both upon the tempter and the ones who fell to the temptation. And we know from reading the end of Scripture that Satan will have his sure end. But humankind are in a cursed world with a cursed end as well. And the only way out is by the redemption of the Lord through the gospel. And that's the idea, but on a smaller scale, Jesus is warning about our earthly interactions and making this clear. Putting a stumbling block in front of somebody, tempting somebody to stumble up, is in itself a great offense. The word woe in verse 7 is not a light word. It matches the strength of the of the reference in verse 6 where it would be better for this person to drown. In simple terms, we might think first of an unbeliever trying hard to get a believer to sin. Uh, I remember my first job I had in Bible college. I worked for an uh, outfit that, that washed and detailed cars, and it was to put it lightly, one of those jobs which anybody could get that job. And uh, because of that, it attracted uh, various kinds of, of young men. A lot of them were my Bible college buddies, uh, but some of them were, were pretty rough guys. And uh, I remember distinctly so many times where those guys tried really hard to get these Bible college preacher boys to say something, to trip up, to get angry, uh, anything. They thought it was just so laughable if they could get one of us to, to, to cry out in rage or to, or to fall into sin some way. And they took that very lightly. That in itself, Jesus says here, is a grave offense. To try to purposefully get somebody to sin is no small thing. On a bigger, on a bigger scale... Probably one of the greatest examples of our day in terms of temptation, probably especially for men, but for women also, is the whole industry of pornography. It is an entire industry given to the temptations of lust and promoting adultery and fornication. Now, it's come to such a place in our day where it's viewed by most of the world as something neutral, something private. Uh, something that's even normal. But in the act of inviting somebody to enjoy the fruits of that, there is a great temptation being put forth. So in this case, there is great woe to the person who indulges in the pornography. They need the grace of God and redemption, but there is also a special woe for those who make the sinful object as well. There is no excuse for either person. And the big idea is this. We never ought to have a light view of sin and temptation. We must never view it as a small thing if something we do causes a believer to react sinfully. We must never view our role as neutral if we purposely place a stumbling block in the way of one of these little ones one of God's little ones. 
And as we read on, the, the force of Jesus' argument shows us that we must be humble in the face of our own private temptation as well. Because sometimes, and maybe most often, the person who puts a stumbling block in our way is ourself. And we read in verse number 8, where Jesus says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it is better to enter life crippled or lame or with one eye than with two hands or two feet or two eyes to be thrown into eternal fire. The question that I have to ask myself and have asked myself over and over again this week in the face of this text is, do I excuse my own sin in terms of, well, it's just my personality, or I'm, I'm especially given to this temptation, or it, it runs in the family, or, well, we all have our vices, Dear ones, Jesus leaves no room on the question of how we should look at the seriousness of sin and temptation. Whether we are the ones indulging in it, placing the temptation in front of someone else, or even if it's our own hands and feet that cause us to sin, we should look at that with a trembling attitude. The admonition for the, the hand or the foot or the eye is that if they cause us to sin, we should be rid of them. Now, we saw this back in Matthew 5, didn't we? Especially concerning temptation to lust. And uh, Scott preached on that passage, and it, he did a great job working through it. And he came to the conclusion, which I agree with, that this is hyperbole, that Jesus is not actually calling for people to maim themselves in the face of temptation. And there's a simple way to think about that as well, because if one hand causes me to sin and I cut it off, I know my sinful nature is such that the other hand would pick up right where the other one left off. And if one foot caused me to stumble and I cut it off and became lame, then my sinful nature is such that I would find another means of mobility to be swift to my own temptation. And if one eye causes me to sin and I pluck it out, then after the pain subsided with the other good eye, I would probably still have a laser focus on the temptation. So it's not literally that we're supposed to cut off one hand, one foot, and pluck out one eye. Rather, the imagery is this. What we do, where we go, and what we focus on are critical Every area of life, including our thought life, our actions, and our movement, in all of those ways, we must have the attitude that sin is not to be messed with. And here's where the humility comes in. We need humility in the face of temptation because, one, we are arrogant in thinking that sin is no big deal. If we look at the very things which the Son of God 
shed his blood for, and we say, it's, it's no big deal. It's just my little vice. Then we are arrogant. We are arrogant in thinking that we are able to face temptation lightly. The moment we say, I'm, yeah, I'm strong enough, that's, that's not going to be a temptation for me. It's, that's no trouble. Then we have lifted ourselves up in pride. We are arrogant in thinking that, that tempting somebody else or placing a stumbling block in front of them is, is no big deal. And we are arrogant in thinking that our lives now have no bearing on the future. Verses 8 and 9 both conclude with this statement that it is better to enter life with one hand, one foot, one eye than it is to enter eternal torment. This is a classic reference to the two destinies of mankind. There is, for the unrepentant, the the unbeliever, the proud, there is the eternal torment. It's described here as flame. And Jesus speaks of this idea as much or more than he speaks of the concept of what we would call heaven. He wants the warning to be clear. There is an eternity at stake. Well, on the other hand, he makes it clear that there is eternal life. And it is better to humble ourselves before the Lord of the universe now than to realize once we enter eternity that all of our arrogance and pride has won us torment. There's a difference in those who recognize their dependence on the Lord versus those who live unto themselves. Those who have such a a high view of self-sufficiency that they pay no attention to the weight of sin and temptation. Jesus calls us to have humility in the face of temptation. Now, I admit those are stern warnings. That is a strongly worded text of Scripture, which is why I think Jesus comes back with the other side of the coin and shows us humility in the face of mercy. Verse 10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Jesus picks up again that idea of of the little ones and the the, the little believers, God's little ones, you and I, dear ones, are, if we've humbled ourselves before the Lord, the Lord's little ones. And don't, be, don't despise being called or considered as a little child because the Lord himself does not despise you as such. And that's the admonition for us. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
Now, this verse brings up the, the popular view of a, something called a guardian angel. Um, the problem here is that the weight of this passage is not on the role of the angels, but on the care and concern of the Father. Um, if there were a passage that promoted the idea of guardian angels, it would really be only this text. And uh, my point is not to, to poo-poo on guardian angels. I just don't think that's what this is teaching. The big idea is not that angels are always watching over us. Rather, it's much stronger than that. The angels are always watching the face of the Father. And he is the one who has his eye on his little children. The angels aren't looking to us. They're looking to God, the ultimate guard and keeper. The angels aren't our guards. The God of the universe is. The Father's care for every one of his children is immense. And Jesus gives this parable, which illustrates it so beautifully. He speaks of us as sheep and of God as our shepherd. In this same recording in Luke 19, uh, we read there that the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Now a little note, some of the later manuscripts in Matthew include that verse here as well. We were talking about this at Collide on Friday. Why is there no verse 11 in uh, some translations of Matthew 18? Well, it doesn't mean that the verse is unbiblical or wrong. It just means that Matthew probably didn't include it there. But the idea is retained in Luke that the mission of the Lord, sent by the Father to seek the lost like a shepherd. That imagery of a shepherd reminds us of Matthew 9. Remember where Jesus looked out and he saw the crowds and he was moved with compassion. Why? Because they were as sheep without a shepherd. Here then, in the parable, the wandering one is, is one of the, the believing little ones. And Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. God, as shepherd, cares for every single one of his children. He humbles himself, so to speak, to seek us out. His mercy runs far and wide to preserve every one of his little ones. When one of God's children wanders, he doesn't say, well, I have Millions more. That one had a lot of problems anyway. I'm just going to let him go. No. Like the careful shepherd, he seeks, he finds, and he saves. The parables that surround this one in Luke 19 also speak of the woman, remember, who lost that coin? And she searched diligently, and she asked her neighbors, and when she found it, she threw a party. 
and also has the great parable of the prodigal son who was lost, yet when he came back, what did the father do? He welcomed him with open arms and slew the fatted calf and gave him a valuable robe and threw the best party imaginable because his son had come back. And with that in mind, we read verse 14 as well, where it says, So it is not the will of my Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That is how God sees each and every single one of his children. Every one of his little ones who has humbled himself before the Lord. He looks at each of them with the same eye of love, the same eye of compassion, the same eye of tender mercy, the same eye of preservation, the same value and worth, the same rich and profound care. And we remember 1 John 3, 1, which says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. See this love? See how it is pictured in the shepherd's care? See how this foreshadows the blood of Jesus? That is the height of which God's fatherly care goes. That is the depth of mercy and kindness. And if that is the Father's care for each of his little ones, then Jesus says, back to verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, this is incredible because all of that, the whole parable about the father's care for his children, that verse about it not being the will of God that any of his children would perish, that is all in this passage to illustrate that command. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. If that is the father's care, then that should be your care as well. Do not despise one of God's children. Despise means to think down on someone, to see them as inferior, to, to have disdain for them, to call or to uh, care nothing for them, to disregard them. And the question then becomes, how do we despise the little ones, God's little ones? This goes back again to that first question the disciples ask. Who is the greatest? And Jesus is showing them, you're asking the wrong question. Because my eye is not to the greatest. My eye is to the, the humble ones, the weak, the poor in spirit, the mourning, the hungry and thirsty. I want to close then with a few Few points of application on this. How do we despise God's little ones, God's children? First, we despise God's children by overlooking them in favor of someone we perceive to be more important. 
We spent some time in James last week, and James 2.1 again re- reminds us, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Peter, one of his sermons, or rather, sorry, this is a, the case where Peter was dealing with Cornelius the Gentile and learning about God's broad care for all the people of the earth that his gospel call goes out beyond just Israel, Peter says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Who is the greatest is the wrong question, the wrong focus. God shows no partiality based on nationality or family upbringing or ability or skill. Neither should we. We despise God's children when we overlook them in favor of a more important person. Second, we despise God's children by neglecting to care for them. That's inherent in the word. To despise means to to not care for. So then the opposite, the admonition would be that we do care for them. 1 John 3, later in the passage, says this, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? And the idea is that God's love reaches out to that one, and yours doesn't? Little children, he goes on, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We despise God's little one when we neglect to care for them. Third, we despise God's little ones by ridiculing them. One of the meanings of the word despise is to scorn. So the other side of the coin is that we are not to scorn God's children. There is a difference between a loving rebuke, loving correction, and scorn or ridicule. One is with an eye of of love and mercy, hoping to build the person up. The other one is with an eye of pride, hoping to tear them down. We despise God's children by ridiculing them. Fourth, we despise God's children by rejecting someone who lovingly corrects us. In a couple weeks, when we come to the next portion of this chapter, uh, we will see the passage that is often referred to as the church discipline passage, and, and so it is. But we see in that passage that the whole idea of the process is restoration, when one who has sinned against somebody is approached lovingly by their brother and confronted When somebody does that for us and we despise them or reject them for it, we're showing our pride. We despise somebody when we reject their loving correction. Fifth, we despise God's little ones when we take advantage of their weakness. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, among other things, he he prays that the Thessalonians would each know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God, and that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Paul is speaking about having self-control and then gives the, uh, the 
admonition that we don't wrong our brother in that matter, in terms of self-control. Why? Because God is the avenger of them. And I made this point because it goes right back to the idea of the stumbling block. We should never put a stumbling block in front of our brother or sister, especially, especially if we know it's an area of their weakness. And the warning is that this is not just unrighteous, but that God himself, as a loving father, as a fierce shepherd, has his eye to them. And he is their avenger. So that original question, which the disciples asked, who is the greater one in the kingdom, has led to all of this. May we not have an eye to to the greatest or even to be great as a goal, but may we humble ourselves before the Lord. May we be humble in the face of sin and temptation, and may we be humble in the face of mercy For God, our merciful Father, cares deeply, deeply for each one of his children. Have you come to know that tender mercy of the Lord? Have you come to know that fierce and undying affection of God for his children? I pray that you would. And if you have, then heed the call of Jesus that if God cares for each of his children in this way, may we not despise one of them either. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your forgiveness. We all endure and face and succumb, sadly, to many temptations Yet, Lord, when one of your children goes astray, you seek. Lord Jesus, that's why you came, to seek and to save, to fulfill that will of the Father that not one of his children should perish. Oh, Lord, would we praise you for your mercy And would we find ourselves humbled before you in the face of it, humbled before our temptation and sin, humbled before our brothers and sisters, not with an eye to greatness, not with an eye to partiality. Lord, but may we have an eye to care as you do. Give us the grace we need so much, so desperately to do this. And may we rejoice with joy unspeakable because of the mercy that you've shown to us in seeking us out. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.